as that song sang about some of the past shame and, and regret that we carry around with us. We're going to talk about that this morning and what we really ought to think about that and how we ought to handle that. Ephesians chapter 6, we're continuing our series in the, the armor of God. So let's read beginning at verse number 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Well, you've been reminded each week if you've been with us that we as Christians are in a battle, that the Christian life it's not a life of ease, it is not a life of comfort, it's a life of trials, it's a life of suffering, it's a life of taking up your cross to follow Christ. It's also a life of warfare. We, when you enter the Christian faith, you become enemies of Satan. You, you, you take your stand, you take your side with the Lord, and as such, uh, you have an enemy who is Satan. And Satan is not happy that you are following the Lord. Satan is working to destroy your faith. Satan is powerful. Satan has many schemes, it says here. There are schemes, there are plans that he is at work seeking to, to enact against us. And so the command given in this passage is that we stand. Stand against the schemes of Satan. The, the picture that is given is of an oncoming force that is attacking and you are ready. You have your, your armor on and you are prepared to stand against the attacks of this oncoming force. And that's what we are called to do. We've noted over and over again, and it's so important to note, that we do not stand in our own strength. You don't do this, you don't just muster up enough willpower and get strong enough and, and think tough enough in order to stand against the schemes of Satan. No, you need to stand in the strength of the Lord. How do we stand in his strength? Well, it isn't, it isn't something that's uh, unsaid in this passage. The way that we stand in the strength of the Lord is by putting on the armor that he's given to us. The armor, I've said this before, but you need to get this to understand this passage. The armor is the strength. How do you stand in the strength of the Lord? You put on the armor that he's provided 
for you. And when you are armored against the attacks of Satan, you have the strength of God. The great danger for the Christian is this, that you passively fail to put on the armor that God has given you. If you do not put on the armor of God, you will fall to the schemes and the plots of Satan. And so you must put on the armor. We've looked at this piece by piece, and we're going to continue that this morning in verse uh, number uh, 17. Take up the helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation. Well, we've, we've said that this is an analogy that Paul is drawing from a Roman uh, soldier, and he's taking each piece of armor and examining it and comparing it, using it as an analogy for some of the things that are crucial in, in the Christian faith. And so this is the helmet of salvation. The helmet was a crucial part of the army, uh, of the armor. Uh, in this period, soldiers often carried a large, heavy sword. Uh, they had a smaller, like almost like a dagger that they would use at times when they got into kind of hand-to-hand combat. Sometimes it was sharper and smaller. It was easier to move around. But there was the longer sword uh, that was broad and heavy, uh, several feet long, uh, and, and would you be used in addition to be, being sharp and being able to jab, uh, it was something that was heavy enough that if it was swung and, and a blow to the head uh, would be potentially fatal. And so this was why a, a helmet would be so crucial. Uh, you had to protect, obviously, uh, a blow to the head is, is going to be problematic. You had to protect your head. And so we you have to wear a helmet that you don't want to suffer one force trauma to your head with one of these broad, heavy swords coming around. Uh, it would be potentially fatal. And so it is in the Christian life uh, that our salvation is cr- a crucial part of our defense against the schemes of Satan. That's what he's saying here. Salvation is like a helmet that you put on your head and it protects you against these Uh, these brutal blows that Satan is seeking to deliver to you. And so we need to put on the helmet of salvation. Well, what is salvation in the Bible? We use that word, and sometimes I always think it's good just to slow down and think about words like that. What does it mean to be saved? That that word, when we look at it, what we find really is that the whole Bible, the whole Bible is a book about salvation. The whole Bible is a book about salvation. Words like Savior, salvation, and so on are used nearly 500 times in, in the Old Testament. And these words, one person says, are most frequently used uh, in the general sense of deliverance from various kinds of distress, danger, or bondage. Salvation usually in the Old Testament uh, took a very tangible physical form. And so you think about the children of Israel, uh, they were saved, they experienced the salvation of the Lord when they were delivered from bondage They were saved from slavery, and then they were brought out uh, to to their freedom. That was an act of salvation. And so so it goes throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Many times the salvation of the Lord in the Old Testament was very tangible, very physical. But one of the things that we see, if you're an astute reader of the Old Testament, you recognize that the peril that the Old Testament people were in was always connected to their sin. There was a reason that they would be enslaved. There was a reason that God would send them into exile 
in Babylon or, or in Assyria or different places. There was a reason that they would be defeated. And the reason was that they were sinning against God. God had given them a covenant. He said, if you keep this covenant, if you obey my words, I will bless you. If you fail to keep this covenant, you will be cursed and, and you will uh, be defeated by your enemies. So, so although it's very physical, tangible salvation, it's always related to a spiritual cause, which is their sin ties to a spiritual problem. When the Old Testament, we see that clearly God is the Savior. The, the Old Testament is a story about redemption. It's a story about salvation. And God is the Savior every time. God is the Savior. In Isaiah 43, 11, he says this, I, and then he emphasizes, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. Time and time again in the Old Testament, God teaches his people that he is their salvation. Don't look to armies. Don't look to military power. Don't look to a lot of horses and a lot of chariots. No, look to the Lord. He is your salvation. In the New Testament, words for salvation and Savior and so on are used over 200 times. Uh, the idea of salvation actually just comes into a clearer focus in, in the New Testament uh, and what we find is that in, in an even clearer and more direct way, uh, we see that the source of our peril or destruction, the thing from which we are saved from, is sin and its consequences, the penalty and the bondage that, that sin brings. And so in the, the Gospels, very early on when Jesus comes as our Savior, it says this in Matthew 121 about Jesus, she will bear a son uh, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from Roman bondage. No, he will save his people from poverty. No, he, he, he will save his people from their sins. That's the work of salvation in the New Testament. Salvation is ultimately a rescue from God's wrath. When we say, I've been saved from my sins, that almost kind of sort of begs the question, doesn't it? What do you mean saved from my sins? What are my sins going to do to me? Well, the answer is that your sins aren't uh, don't have the capability to do anything to you. When you're saved from your sins, you, you actually mean you're saved from the wrath of God that is brought about by your sin. The thing that you're saved from is God's wrath and God's judgment. First Thessalonians 1.10 says this, that, that Jesus is the one who delivers us. He delivers us. He saves us from the wrath of to come, There's a coming judgment day in which we will stand before the Lord and judgment will fall on all who are sinners and that's all of us. And so salvation is an act of God delivering us from his own wrath. In the New Testament, we also get a clearer focus of the way that this salvation comes. In the Old Testament, it said that God was our Savior. In the New Testament, we get a clearer uh, picture of that. It's actually Jesus, the Son of God, who is our Savior. Luke 2, 11 says, For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Remember, God said, I, I alone am your salvation. I'm your Savior. And now we get in the New Testament that Jesus, who is the Son of God, is, is our Savior. It, it, unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is our Savior. Ephesians 5.23 says that he is the Savior of the church. We see also a clear focus that this salvation 
is to be received by anyone who will believe. In the Old Testament, who's, who, who did God rescue? Who did God redeem? Who did God save? His people, Israel, right? His salvation was not poured out on, on the whole world. It was given to this group of people, this nation, Israel. They were delivered from Egypt. They were delivered at various points throughout their history. It was for the people of Israel. In the New Testament, that's broadened out and salvation uh, from our sins is promised to anyone, any people group, any place, any time. Uh, that is anyone who will believe and trust in, in Christ. So John 3.16 says, For God so loved Israel, no, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in, in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ from the wrath of God is a salvation that is received by believing in Jesus Christ and it's open to anyone. Are you here this morning? You're going to stand before God. You're going to be judged for your sin. God's wrath is going to be poured out on you. But this morning you have an opportunity because you're hearing the gospel. You have an opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ and to be forgiven, to be saved from the wrath that is to come. I would urge you to do that this morning. Don't leave this place this morning without trusting in Christ, without believing in Him and being sure that you are saved from the wrath to come. One other thing that we see about uh, salvation is that there, there really are, if we want to think of it this way, there are three tenses of salvation. We know, hopefully you know enough English, right? There are three tenses with our verbs. There's the, the past, the present, and the future, the past tense, present tense, future tense. Uh, it's helpful for us, I think, to, if we're just trying to think about what salvation is, I, I think that we can see there are actually three dimensions of salvation. There's a past dimension, there's a present dimension, and there's a future dimension. In the past, I have been saved from my sins. But we could also say in the present, present tense, I am now being saved from my sins. And in the future, one day I will be saved from my sins. There are all three of those dimensions or applications of our salvation. Derek Thomas in an article says this. He says, there's only one salvation. There's only one way of salvation. What occurred in our past works itself out in the present and comes to consummation in the future. And it's all of one piece. We see this in Romans 8.28. There's a sort of an unbreakable chain of salvation. It begins in eternity past in which it says, uh, Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he knew us ahead of time. He also predestined and conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined in eternity past, he also called, that's present tense. And those whom he called, he justified, that's present tense. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's, that's the future when we are glorified. So there's a past tense of salvation. There's a present tense. I have been saved. I am being saved. And one day I will be saved. We can think of it and sort of add another layer to that and think of the specific uh, sort of uh, focus of each one of those dimensions. So in the past, we're thinking about past salvation. We might think of the reality of the fact that we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. 
Past tense, I have been saved. What does that mean? I've been forgiven of my sins. I'm not guilty anymore. I don't bear the penalty for, for my sins. When we talk about uh, the present tense of salvation, that is, I am being saved from the power of sin. In other words, God is at work redeeming me and freeing me. Just like we sang in that song just now, that we're, we're being freed from the bondage of sin. We are presently being saved right now. He's working out our salvation throughout the remainder of our life. And then there's the future tense. I will be saved from the presence of sin. There's a day coming, praise the Lord, in which we will no longer be a work in progress. In which no longer we will be struggling and fighting with sin and trying to overcome sin. But we will have overcome sin. We will be delivered from the presence of sin. It will be gone from us. Our bodies will be made new. We will no longer have a sinful flesh which inclines us to sin. We will no longer have to struggle with sin. We will be glorified. And we'll be in a world where there's no sin around us. Praise the Lord. There will be perfect justice. Christ will rule and reign in justice. Everything will be perfect. One day we will be saved. I've been saved from the penalty of sin. I'm being saved right now from the power of sin. And in the future, I will be saved from the presence of sin. And so as we just kind of unpack all of that, that's what salvation is. And what we need to see here is that understanding this, Taking these truths into our heart, the things that I've been explaining, taking these things into our heart and, and sort of bringing them, integrating them into our lives and into the way that we think is crucially important in our defense against Satan. When Satan comes to attack you, when he tempts you or when he makes accusations against you, you have to understand and know these realities. I've been saved. I've been forgiven. I'm no longer guilty. God has delivered me and is in the process of delivering me from the power of sin. And in the future, one day, he will deliver me from the presence of sin. This is utterly important. It's of utmost importance in our defense against Satan. Paul is speaking of those in this passage who are already Christians. So this is not, when he says put on the helmet of salvation, he's not talking to people who are not Christians. He's, he's talking to Christians and he's saying that, not that they need to experience salvation for the first time, but they that they need to come to a place of fully integrating salvation into their hearts and their minds. You see, here's the problem, brothers and sisters. A lot of us, we've been saved, but we're not living like we're saved. We've been saved, but we don't fully understand the, the reality of what we possess in Christ. We've been saved, but we're not living that out because we don't quite understand all that God is doing in us. So the call for us to put on this, the helmet of salvation is not First of all, to be saved. You, you've been saved already if you believe in Christ. The, the call this morning is that you need to walk like you understand what that means. You, you need to integrate these truths into your life, into the way that you think. So this morning what we want to do is just focus on this first part. The past tense of our salvation. I have been saved from the guilt and penalty of my sin. We want to understand what guilt is. Now, if you're, I think most of us as, as Christians, we understand that there, there are many of us who struggle with feelings of guilt. I won't ask anybody to raise their hand, uh, but, but I think most of us would say that there are times, and for some of you, 
Uh, that, that is a very real thing that is, is ongoing in your life. You have feelings of guilt over things that have taken place in your past. And, and for many of you, when we sing songs like that, that the burden of my heart has rolled away. You, you don't, that's what I'm saying. That really hasn't been integrated into your life because you're still, it seems, carrying a burden around you. You think back to that mistake that you made when you were younger. You think back to the ways that you have fallen short and you sort of carry that burden around with you. What we need to see this morning is that we don't need, we don't need to do that. Let, let me just help us think about this morning. What, what is guilt? Where does guilt come from? Well, First thing that we need to do is distinguish between feelings of guilt and actual guilt. We need to distinguish between feelings of guilt and actual guilt. They're not the same thing. Here's the reality. There are some people who are guilty who feel no guilt. You've, I'm sure, seen the criminals. I mean, maybe they don't have a videotape of them committing the murder, but every piece of evidence says that this guy is guilty. The jury finds him guilty. He's he is guilty, right? But but what does he say? I didn't do it. I'm not guilty. He's just walking around like he doesn't have a care in the world, acting as if he has no guilt. The, the problem is for that person, he doesn't feel guilty. But is he guilty? Yes, he, he's guilty. So, so feelings of guilt and actual guilt don't always match up. The other problem on the other side of the coin of that is that sometimes we may feel guilty Although we are not guilty. Where, where do feelings of guilt come from? Let's, let's think about that. Well, true guilt is a work of our conscience. God has created us with a conscience. That is, a conscience is, you, you know, you, you can't do surgery on somebody uh, after, they, after they do, uh, after they pass away and you do an autopsy and say, oh yeah, there, there's their conscience, right? Uh, but this is an innate sense of morality that God gives to all people. That Romans 2.14 says that the law of God has been written on our hearts and that when we that when we act sinfully, that our conscience bears witness against us. It either accuses or excuses us. So we have all been given a conscience by God. And so that's part of where those feelings of guilt originate. When you do something that your conscience tells you, you should not do this. This is wrong, right? And you do it anyway. You feel shame. You feel guilt. It's interesting. You, you can tell this, that we really do have a conscience just by watching your children. Maybe you've got a child that has no conscience. So that, that could be uh, part of it. But, but, but for most of us, I think what we see is that when your kids do something wrong, even at a very young age, you say, don't, don't get a cookie out of the cookie jar. Right? You come in and they've got crumbs all over their mouth and their hands and they made a big mess. Did you get a cookie? No. And you could just see this shame and this guilt. That they, where is that coming from? They know that they've done something wrong because God has given them a conscience. And that's where our guilt comes from. Well, those feelings of guilt sort of get heightened when we come to the, the Word of God. God's Word and God's Spirit work as well to bring us uh, that sense of guilt. So when we read the Bible, the Bible says uh, that it's like a sharp two-edged sword which pierces down to the depths of our soul. When you read the Word of God, it bears witness with your conscience and you think about all the things that you've done wrong and that guilt is heightened. God's Spirit also works to convict us of sin. You see the, the feelings of guilt 
uh, with somebody like the psalmist in Psalm 38. This is, listen to what he says in Psalm 38. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Here he's going to describe in a poetic way his guilt. Your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. That's the sense of guilt. Some of you are walking around with that guilt right now. There are things that you have done and you constantly bear the burden of that guilt. Guilt is actually a good thing. It's, it's a, a work of the, our conscience. It's a work of God's word and God's spirit. And it's meant to lead us to repentance. Uh, the, 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 the guilt that we experience is kind of like the warning light of the soul. If you're driving your car and the warning light comes on, what do you do? Well, anymore, right? We just kind of ignore them because there's so many lights that come on and it's like you left your gas cap loose or something. It didn't get, you know. But, but back in the day when a warning light meant something, uh, you took it pretty seriously. You don't just take a hammer and knock out the, the warning light and just keep driving you, driving it, do you? Well, well, that's what our guilt is like. God has given us a conscience that produces guilt within us. And the point of that is to recognize that was wrong. What I'm doing is wrong. I need to confess that. I need to repent and turn away from it. That's the right response. Confession and repentance. First John 1, 9, uh, he says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you have sin, if you have guilt that is weighing you down, that's God working on you, bringing conviction in you. That's a good thing because what he wants you to do is to confess that sin, confess it to God, and it may be necessary to confess it to others. But then you also repent. You, you turn away from your sin. If you realize, hey, this was wrong, then the right response to those feelings of guilt is to say, I'm going to turn away from that. I've, I've been lying. I've been living a lie. I've been telling my wife or I've been telling somebody something that's not true or I've, I've been uh, committing some kind of sin in an ongoing way. I need to confess that to God and repent of it. I need to turn away from it. In Acts 2, 37, when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost to those who have been responsible, at least in part, for the crucifixion of Christ, Peter tells him that. He says, you, you by your wicked hands have crucified the Lord of glory. It says in this, now when they heard this, when they heard Peter's message that they were guilty of crucifying the Messiah, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. They felt this shame and this guilt. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. He tells them to repent, turn away from your sins and be baptized, turn in faith to Jesus Christ. So maybe this morning you're here and you're, you're sensing this, this weight. You've got weight. You've got guilt. And the problem is you've never actually dealt with your sin. What you need to do this morning to, to rid yourself of this guilt, of this conviction, is to get that sin right. God has given you those feelings of guilt, and they're a good thing because they're meant to lead you to the Lord. So confess your sin to God and turn away from it. There's a problem with the conscience, though. There's a problem with the conscience. The, the first problem is this. 
And I'm just going to mention this briefly. The first problem is this. Sometimes we can have what the Bible calls a seared conscience. That is, we do what's wrong, but we've done it so much and so often, and we've ignored our conscience over and over and over again, that our conscience just simply no longer works as it ought to. So this, this is a person who, as we see this in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, Titus 1, 15, it talks about people whose consciences are seared or whose consciences are defiled. Friends, that's a very dangerous place to be. I would just urge you and warn you, if you're in some kind of sin that, that your conscience is telling you this is wrong and you're sensing the conviction of God's spirit, don't press on. Don't think, well, I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to ignore that because you will get at a very dangerous place. And that is a place in which you are just hardened in your sin. You have a hard heart, a seared conscience, and you are able to sin uh, without feeling any weight because of that sin. That is not a good place. In fact, we saw that, didn't we, in Ephesians 4.19 when it talks about people in the world? It says that they have become callous. They've become callous, Ephesians 4. 19. But there's also a second problem, and this is what we wanted to focus on this morning, and that is this. Sometimes we can experience false guilt. We can experience false guilt. That is, we sometimes have a weight of guilt that we shouldn't have. One of the ways that can happen is Romans 14, and we won't deal with this, but a person who has a weak conscience. If you grew up like me in a place where sometimes there were some legalistic tendencies, People came up with rules that weren't rules from the Bible. And so you could feel wrong about doing something that there wasn't anything wrong about, about, you know. Uh, still, uh, part of our family, I mean, playing cards is like of the devil. And I searched high and low. I've, I've never seen where it says anything about thou shalt not play cards. But, but for them, that was the standard. And it wasn't just a personal preference. Like if you think that, if you don't want to play cards, that's fine. But what you shouldn't do is teach everybody else that it is a sin to play cards. Now, it might be a sin to cheat at cards, and I might be guilty of that sometimes. But it is not a sin to play cards. But if you've been taught that your whole life, you can have a weak conscience so that you feel guilty about something that you shouldn't feel guilty about. But there's a second way that you can experience that kind of false guilt. And that is that your conscience can continue to accuse you of something from your past, something that's already been pardoned, that's already been forgiven. We're, we're talking about here the way that Satan comes against us. And we said that Satan does two things primarily. First is he tempts us to sin. But then the second way that Satan attacks us and seeks to destroy our faith is through accusation. And so Satan comes against us and he accuses us. He brings up things from our past and says, look, who are you? Look how guilty you are. Look at all the wrong things that you've done. And he plays those things over our mind. And, and then, if we're not careful, if we don't deal with those kind of attacks in the right way, what we find is that we, our conscience begins to resonate with that. And we begin to feel guilt. And we begin to feel the weight of our sin again. Although, if you're a believer and you've repented and turned to Christ, those sins have been forgiven. They've been pardoned. And you're no longer guilty. Sometimes Christians allow Satan to have a place in their mind and to continue to work with uh, our work, uh, do his work of, of accusation. If there's sexual immorality or abortion 
or lies or deceit or divorce or failures in parenting or failures in living for Christ or failures in your your marriage. Satan comes to you and and, and reminds you of those things. If you don't deal with them correctly, your your conscience will again be able to, uh, you'll begin to experience that feeling of guilt. But I told you earlier, didn't I, that there's a difference between feelings of guilt and actual guilt. So you can have those feelings of guilt and not actually be guilty, right? Well, are we guilty if those things are in our past? If we've committed sexual immorality or divorce or abortion or lying or gossip or failures to follow Christ, are are we guilty? Well, in the sense that we've done those things, right? We, we have been guilty of them. But, but this morning, what we need to understand is we need to put on the helmet of salvation. And what does the helmet of salvation tell us? We have been saved in the past from our sins. We've been forgiven. We've been pardoned of our sin. A person who's been pardoned of their sin is no longer guilty anymore. So although we can feel the guilt, we can feel the shame of those things, we are not actually guilty. Sometimes our past sin have, have ongoing consequences. And we understand that. Maybe we've sinned in our marriage and it's led to divorce. And, and so we have sadness over the fact that we're no longer divorced but, or we're no longer married. Uh, but and, and that's not going to change, right? Maybe everybody's moved on. That's, we're not going to change the situation. Uh, but are we still guilty of that sin? If God's forgiven you, you're not guilty anymore. No matter what horrible thing you've done in your past, no matter how many times you've done it in your past, if you are forgiven by God, that sin has been pardoned and you are no longer guilty. And so we don't need to carry the weight of that that guilt. Our past sin can continue to, to bear an emotional pain. But the problem is when we allow that pain from the past to to make us bear a a sense of guilt as if we are still guilty before God. God. So what we need to do this morning is put on the helmet of salvation. When Satan comes against us, when he reminds us of our past, when he reminds us of the ways that we failed against him or, or against God, we need to put on the helmet of salvation. For some of you, your guilt, this is why this is such a big problem. Your guilt and the way that you think about your past is keeping you from effectively living for the Lord in the present and in the future. You're still, you've got your eyes fixed back on all the mistakes you've made, all the ways, all the things you wish you could change. And and you're carrying around that weight of guilt. And because you're doing that, because that's where your focus is, you're not living for the Lord right now. So you need to put on the helmet of salvation. How do we do that? Well, first of all, there are several points in this, but first of all, we need to start with the right framework. Start with the right framework. You need to understand this. You are not the judge. Your sin is not against you. Your sin is against God. And God is the judge. And God is the one who's able to forgive you. Sometimes Christians and people will say, well, I need to learn to forgive myself. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And, and if we understand what somebody means by that, I think there's a better way to explain that. But, but listen, you ain't the judge. Your sin isn't against you. You can't forgive yourself. Your sin is against God. 
and it's against other people. Other people can forgive you. God can forgive you. Uh, but your sin is against God. God's the judge and he's the one who is able to declare that you are forgiven. In Psalm 51, you remember the Psalm of David? After he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed, Psalm 51, he said this, against you and you only, talking to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David recognized, look, I, I, I know that my wrong has harmed Bathsheba and her family and certainly Uriah lost his wife and there were a lot of other people that this sin affected. His sin affected a lot of people. But David understood something that is crucially important. My sin is first and foremost against you, God. And so he cries out to God for forgiveness. So you need to have the right framework. Your sin, the things that you have done in your past, uh, the, the, the damage of them is, is not just about the way they've messed up your life or the other people that they've hurt. The, the primary problem with your sin is that it is against a holy God. And he is the one who's able to forgive you. Secondly, if you're going to put on the helmet of salvation and, and stand against the, the attack of, of Satan, you need to make sure that you've adequately, adequately dealt with your sin. You need to, what do we say, confess your sin and repent of it. Confess and repent of, of your sin. That's the proper thing. Some of you, again, you're dealing with guilt and you're holding on to the weight of this. And the problem is that you've never found forgiveness. You've never sought forgiveness from the Lord. You've never, you've never truly recognized that what you did was wrong. You, you kind of own it a little bit. Yeah, I wish I wouldn't have done that. This has really messed up my life. It's wrong. But you need to come to the point where you say, this was a sin. It was wrong. It was something that I, that I willingly did. I chose to do this thing. It was wrong. It was a sin against God. To confess means to say the same thing. And so when we confess our sins, we're saying the same thing that God says about them. It wasn't just a little mistake. It wasn't a lapse in judgment. It wasn't just an act of my immaturity in my youth. It was a sin against God. You need to confess it, and then you need to turn away from it. Some of you feel guilt over past things because you're continuing to do them. And they're not in the past. They're things that you're continuing to hold on to. So you need to relinquish them, confess them, and turn them over to the Lord. So start with the right framework. Make sure you've adequately dealt with it. And then you need to forget about it. You need to forget about it. And you say, man, there's no way. If you understood what I did, or you understood the weight and the impact of my actions, you would know that I, I could never forget about it. Well, what I'm not saying there is that you're going to be able to erase this from your memory. But what I am saying is that you can actively choose not to dwell on it anymore. Don't, don't allow it to continue to be in your thoughts. If you dwell on those things, uh, you're giving a foothold to Satan. When Satan comes and he accuses you and then you just sit around and you know our memories, you know the way that our memories work. I, I've got certain memories of things that I've done that, that are like they're burned, they're etched into your memory and you're able to, to replay them. And some of you do that. Some of you sit around and you think through blow by blow, frame by frame, the ways that you have messed up, the ways that you have sinned against God. And guess what? That is you joining in with Satan to accuse yourself. 
You're dwelling on these things. You're you're allowing them to play over and over again in your mind. Listen, when when a thought pops into your mind, you can't always control that, can you? Right? We don't have absolute control like that. Sometimes a thought will come into your mind like, where in the world did that come from? I wasn't thinking about that. That wasn't on my mind. It just pops into your mind. But do you know what you have control over? You have control over what you do next. Do you allow that to become your focus? Do you continue to dwell on it? Do you continue to think about that sin and play it over in your mind and then work yourself into feeling guilty and feeling that weight again? When you do that, you're sinning against God. You need to take an active role in your thoughts. You need to forget it. You need to forget about those things in your past. Listen to what Paul said. You all know what the Apostle Paul did, didn't you? Paul was a man who... who persecuted the church. Paul was a man who was standing there when one of the first deacons, Stephen, was stoned to death. And Saul was standing there and gathered up everybody's coats who was stoning Stephen. You you imagine, we read these stories in the Bible sometimes. I don't think we really think about them in in reality. Could you imagine the trauma uh, and, and the impact that watching someone be stoned to death would have on you? You think, talk about memories etched uh, you know, things etched into your memory. You think Paul ever remember, ever forgot Stephen crying out to the Lord? You, you think he ever forgot the, the, the sight of, of those men stoning Stephen, casting stones on him, the blood that was running down Stephen? Do you think Paul ever forgot that? And there he was. It says consenting to all of this. This was good. This was right. This is what should happen to these Christians. All of them like like Stephen. I would dare say Paul, the Apostle Paul, never forgot that. But listen to what he says in Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I'm not perfect. Listen to what he says. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And that's what I'm saying you need to do. If you're struggling with guilt in your past, you've dealt with it, you've repented of this sin, it's been resolved, you need to forget what lies behind. You, you need to not allow Satan to just have full reign of your mind and, and allow you to just dwell on these thoughts from your past. Forget what lies behind. And why is that so important? He says, forgetting what lies behind so that I can strain forward to what's ahead of me. And that's what I said earlier. Some of you are are so paralyzed by guilt from things that you have in your past that, that you're not able to serve the Lord now. And that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants you to be paralyzed. He wants you to be frozen. He doesn't want you to be effective in the work that God has called you to do. You need to forget what lies behind and press forward. So forget about it. Thirdly, you need to reject the lies of Satan. Satan is the accuser of the brother. That's what he does. He accuses us. And remember, he's a liar from the beginning. Everything he does is built on lies, distortions, and half-truths. So let me ask you this morning. If God has pardoned you, if you have been forgiven of your sins, are you guilty anymore? You're not guilty. 
You don't bear the weight of your guilt anymore. You've been forgiven. Your sins have been washed away. They've been buried in the depths of the ocean. God has cast them behind his back. They are forgotten. They're gone and you are pardoned. You are not guilty. So when you join in with Satan and you replay these things in your mind and you begin to even accuse yourself, you are sinning against God. You're failing to believe the promises of God. Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, think about these things. If you're thinking about the guilt of your sin, that is something that is not true. You have been pardoned. You have been forgiven. Fourthly, then you need to believe the truth. Believe the truth. Reject the lie of Satan. Believe the truth. And that means you need to remind yourself of the promises of God. You need to remind yourself of what God has authoritatively declared about you. Remember, who is the judge? Who is the one who gets to declare whether we're guilty or not? It's God. It's not even you. You you and I don't get to determine whether we're guilty or not. God is the judge. Nobody else gets to determine that. God is the judge. And what does God say about those who have believed in Christ? Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are here this morning and you are in Christ Jesus, you need to believe the truth of what God has declared about you. When when you bring up these things from your past and you dwell on them as if you are still guilty, you are believing a lie of Satan. You need to believe the truth. God has authoritatively declared that you are not guilty. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on in Romans 8 to say this in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also not graciously give us all things? Now listen to this question. Who shall bring anything to the charge of God's elect? If you're a believer here this morning, you're God's elect. You're God's chosen people. And he asked the question, who's going to bring anything against against you? Do you think there's someone who can charge you as being guilty? Maybe you think you can charge yourself. I know these things that I've done. I know the ways that I've fallen short. I, I can remember them. I play them over in my mind. I know. He says, who can, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. So he's asking the question, listen, if God has declared you righteous, if God has declared you not guilty, if he has acquitted you of all sin, if he has pardoned you, who are you to condemn yourself? Who are you to condemn anyone else who's in Christ? Listen, we can't bring an accusation against God's people because God has already authoritatively declared that they are not guilty. There's nothing that you or anyone else can bring against one of God's children that that will bring guilt upon them. We're innocent. We've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. So you need to believe the truth. And then finally, and we'll close with this this morning, we need to pray that God will restore the joy of our salvation. Sometimes when we're feeling the weight of all that, part of what we're just feeling is, is sort of the broken fellowship with the Lord. Uh, one of the things that happens when we sin is, is that sometimes our fellowship is, is broken with God. 
God disciplines his children. One of the ways that he disciplines us sometimes is to remove uh, his presence, as it were, to, to hide his face. That fellowship is broken. I'll close with this this morning. Listen to what the psalmist prayed again, David in Psalm 51, after he had sinned and committed this great sin uh, against Bathsheba and others. He said this, let, let me hear joy and gladness. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David didn't have any broken bones, but he felt like it. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The same spirit of God that produces conviction in our hearts is also the spirit which brings us peace. The fruit of the spirit is peace. And so if you're experiencing the weight of sin and sorrow from your past and you've dealt with it, you need to not dwell on it anymore. You need to reject the lies of Satan. You need to believe what God has authoritatively declared on you. And then you need to pray to the Lord that he would restore the joy of his salvation, that you would know that fellowship with God once again. I want to invite you to do that this morning. Perhaps there are some of you here this morning who you've got sin in your past and you haven't dealt with it. I want to encourage you to confess that this morning and repent of it. If you have this morning, I want to encourage you to, to pray to the Lord and seek restored fellowship and the joy of the salvation that he so freely gives. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. I want to pray, Lord, for those who are burdened down with the weight of sin. I want to pray that they would know what it is to be forgiven. I want to pray, Lord, that they would experience the joy of your fellowship once again. Pray that for those who are entrenched in their sin, I, I pray that you would grant them repentance this morning, that they, would, that they would finally confess it. Maybe they've been holding on to it because they're embarrassed and they're, they're ashamed and Satan's kept them locked in the prison of their sin. I pray, Lord, that you would grant them freedom to openly confess that this morning. And then the, the ability to turn away from God, we pray that you would do this through Christ. Amen.